Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson, I'm an economist here at Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on the gig economy. It has been suggested that the world of work is changing as increasingly workers are no longer salaried but are employed as independent contractors and are paid by consumers for a specific job or a gig. These gigs are often, although not always, allocated by a range of technology platforms that offer new ways to buy and sell, to rent and to hire. Research by the Trade Unions Congress estimate that one in 10 workers in the UK now regularly does platform allocated work. Is the gig economy empowering workers, providing flexibility and encouraging entrepreneurship? Or is it the product of big tech companies enabling the exploitation of workers? Joining me today to discuss these issues are Dr. Belinda Bell, Director of the Cambridge Social Ventures here at Cambridge Judge Business School, Dr. Chris Coleridge, Senior Faculty and Management Practice at the Judge Business School, and Dr. Thomas Roulet, University Senior Lecturer in Organisation Theory and Fellow of Girton College in Cambridge. So welcome to my guests. Perhaps the, um, the first big question is, is, is what is the gig economy? And perhaps there's many different definitions of what the gig economy is, so perhaps it would be useful to start by discussing that concept. Belinda. Sure. So I think it is useful to think at the beginning about what we mean, because when people mention the gig economy, they're usually, I think, talking about Uber drivers or Deliveroo or some of these classic, as you imply, platform um, uh, driven businesses. Um, but the gig economy is also um, perhaps represented in the increased precarious positions of all sorts of people across our economy. So we think about, um, in fact, here in universities, um, some of our lecturers and academic staff so have the increasing casualisation of their labour. We know this is happening in, uh, in hospitals from senior medical professionals right the way through. Um, and, you know, I was speaking to somebody just this week, actually, who basically works at what more, a well-known think tank and is effectively a gig economy worker. And so... As we have the conversation, I think it's helpful to consider it in the context not just of low-end jobs driven um, extremely by platforms, but more broadly in terms of um, precarious work and, uh, and, and, and lack of salary security. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think Belinda's right. The, the last 30 years have sort of prepared the ground for the gig economy. We used to think that workplaces had a social function of providing people with their social capital and their opportunity to uh, socialize and learn things and develop themselves and so on. And that has really weakened across the, that, that idea has really weakened across the economy. Uh, I, I notice a lot of programs on television about workplaces and I feel sometimes when, that they're almost memorializing a past uh, way that we all like of, of uh, people relating to each other uh, in the workplace. And these platforms are just providing the technology that go, that takes the concept of, of, of a sort of very functional, task-based approach to work a step further uh, than, than it was already happening. Thomas? Yeah, Chris stressed the importance of those new intermediaries, and you also mentioned the, the platforms. All of these gig economies enabled by new intermediaries that are building a new form of power. Initially, in normal economic relationship, we had power between uh, the customer, the supplier, and now we have this intermediary, which can concentrate a lot of power because they have the information about the customer, about the market, about the suppliers, and they bring the demand uh, and the supply together and they get a lot of power and they take a cut, an economic cut out of it. But, but that's, that's the, the technology-driven 
gig economy. Just getting back to what Belinda was saying, we seem to have a, a flexible labour market uh, driven gig economy. I mean, are, are the two separate or, or, or are they related to each other? I mean, would, would we have a gig economy without platforms, I suppose, is what I'm saying? We could have a gig economy before platform. I mean, if you look at uh, the before platform, if you look at uh, Gumtree or other websites that already played some kind of role, but without the formal aspects of the platform, uh, I think, yeah, the gig economy is enabled by the platform, but uh, it existed before, uh, before the, the platform. That's a very important issue, though, but I'm trying to think about to what extent has the gig economy been driven independent of technology? It's, it's driven with the casualization of the labor market, by the power of capital, by, by the, the, the push from the probably the 70s onwards to a more flexible labor market. Would we have a gig? Is a gig economy anything unique to, to platform technology, or would we have a gig economy anyway? Well, I mean, in a country like the UK, where we had a zero-hour contract, I mean, this is already, as you said, the casualization of work and the gig economy is another branch of this casualization. But if you think about the French economy, for example, where we don't have anything like the zero-hour contract, yes, there it's creating a lot of casualization that didn't exist before. So I think it very depends on the political economy of those different institutional systems of those different countries. We'll come back to the, the, the issue of, of, of what we should do about it in terms of policy, but I mean, other advantages to companies have been in a gig economy. I mean, it must reduce their costs, makes them more flexible, more responsive, more responsive to consumers. Consumers get a better product or a better service. So are there advantages to, for companies that have been based on a gig economy approach, particularly, I think, probably a platform-based gig economy approach? Chris? Well, advantages to companies in what sense? I mean, it, certainly... Making more money, I yeah, suppose. Profits. From a capitalist yeah, yeah, point of yeah, view, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's more efficient. Right? Yeah. You're taking what perhaps would have been a waste... Uh, a, a wasted hour that somebody would have spent doing doing nothing, and they're able to uh, to bring it to the labour market and, uh, and 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 make some money. So nice, perhaps from their point of view, but from the uh, from the from the owner's point of view, the increased supply drives down the uh, the, the the cost of labour, increases their negotiating uh, power in that relationship. I think what the what the platform owners, where the platform owners are adding value, is that they're dealing with the issue of trust, right? They're dealing with the issue of how do we, how, do, how does the consumer trust that a, a fairly uh, random person who, who's just plugged into the platform is going to deliver the service uh, to a certain standard in a way that, uh, that, that, that uh, works for the consumer. So the gig, the gig economy before uh, platforms required a certain amount of one-on-one -on -one negotiation between uh, task commissioner and task, uh, task provider. The platform is taking some of that away and working to create some kind of uniformative experience, some kind of trust. I mean, it's interesting, Chris, that at, at the same time as doing that, when we think about trust, this kind of extractive model is also kind of undermining some of the bases of kind of the social contract we have in the UK mm. anyway, uh, you know, and so we could probably, because of, because of the lack of worker security, right, so some of the kind of essentials of, of the trust that helps the economy to run. And I think we'll see increasingly the sort of, the, the, whether or not the trust really lasts through data security breaches, which are a sort of inevitable thing on the horizon. And so I think the trust is, uh, question is very interesting. I think we also put a huge trust into those platforms. 
So we think about platform as a way to make supply meets demand, and it's great for finding customers or finding suppliers for those, those firms. So there are many advantages if the platform can be trusted. If the platform does concentrate a lot of power, uh, extract a lot of value from the relationship, and we don't have any trust for the platform, then potentially there is no trust between customer and suppliers that are building their relationship on the basis of this platform. So the great news in that regard is the uh, growth over the last couple of years of platform cooperatives. Um, so platform co-ops are um, uh, structured to try to um, make the platform, make the um, gig economy work better for all players. And there are some really interesting examples. Um, for instance, uh, there's one called Stocksy United, which is for people who take photographs and film people as well. And, and it's, uh, it's run as a co-op, and so they share uh, their royalties and dividends and all the rest of it. And they have sort of thousands of members across lots of countries. But we're also seeing things like, um, you would have seen in the last week or two, Fair B&B launched. So that's like Airbnb, but Fair. And they've been getting around to launching for a long while, and they have now launched in five cities. So again, they're using um, the same model as Airbnb, but the point is, is that it's, it's done. In this case, they're giving um, money back. I think they give half their profits away. Way or something like that. I'm not sure of the details. Um, and in the UK, the one I'm actually most interested in watching is the Equal Care Co-op because um, Equal Care Co-op is working in the um, where the incumbent uh, is um, Vida, where you're having carers doing work in people's homes to care for pe vulnerable people. So it's that kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship, as you said, Chris. Like, how do you ex um, create trust in that situation? And one way to do it is that the Equal Care Co-op is owned as a cooperative by the workers who are working within it, and so. They have a completely different approach to how they're trying to, yes, um, get paid a decent wage, but they're doing that by not having to pay out profits outside of the platform co-op. And so it's really hard for these platform co-ops to get traction because obviously platforms need scale to get going. Um, but if they can do it, then maybe that is a way that we can take uh, the gig economy and make it work better for more people. Although there are still problems even with that. How, how, how do we deal with that important challenge of scale? Because I'm, I'm looking at it from the outside thinking anybody could start a business, a platform, but they're only successful with scale. And, and many of these big platforms aren't even making any money yet. Mm. And they've, got, they've got an awful lot of finance. I mean, so does the technology encourage new form formation or does it discourage it because the, you need scale up, you need scale, you need size to be effective? I mean, how, how do we deal with those sorts of Balances, Chris. Well, we're in. We're, uh, what uh, Tamar and Belinda have both been picking up on is that this this is a new horizon, right? This is the, we, we, when when the telegraph came along, uh, the 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 first uses of the of the, of the technology were all pretty pretty unsavory. People used it to try to scam uh, gambling and things th things like that, right? And and so this first flowering of the platform gig platform based. Uh, gig economy, you know, as as Belinda's examples uh, suggest, uh, are being followed by another wave of innovation, uh, perhaps a, a, a more uh, socially palatable uh, form of innovation that says, okay, there, there's there are multiple uh, stakeholders here, there are multiple customers here. Uh, the gig economy seems to be unsatisfactory in some ways. Uh, we, let's let's try. Uh, let's let's try to come up with new value propositions for the task provider uh, that don't compromise the, the the task commissioner. So, as with any entrepreneurial endeavor, to your question, 
uh, we would expect to see lots of failures and lots of, fa of you know, what we now think of as failed experiments rather than, rather than failures, uh, with people saying, okay, can I get volume, can I get traction, can I build something lasting uh, through, uh, through, through this approach. Now, I, I, would, I would suggest that uh, the, 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 the stars of the platform economy are all about scale, and there's nothing that says that we can't have scale at a local level, and that we can't still get uh, sort of liquidity for customers and the ability for them to get their jobs done uh, at, a, at, at a local level. There, we, we, we can form these firms, we don't necessarily need to think of them in terms of being multinational giants in order to succeed. Picking up on Chris's point about the, the youth of platform-enabled um, uh, gig businesses, um, that it, you're right, you know, the, 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 whilst it is still young, this sector is potentially malleable. And so, um, leaving aside the, the companies for a minute or the customers, the, the role for government here, I think it's really, really important. Um, and we have to do something about it because self-employed people pay less tax, you know. And so we've got a reducing tax, tax base from these non-traditional forms of employment. Um, and I think there really is um, important things that the government is, uh, or governments here and around the world are not yet picking up about, you know, what do we do about sick and holiday pay? How do we work out this worker versus self-employed versus employee thing? Uh, but also things like training, you know, what does training and development look like within a gig economy? Um, because we all have very long careers these days. So we're going to need some sort of idea. Well, I'm assuming we think it's not the idea that people should be able to have personal development. How would that work long term within the gig economy? So it's really important to have these conversations now as these businesses take off so that we can make interventions sort of at the macro level. Mm -hmm. So, so we've, we've moved very much to, to looking at the workers now rather than the company. So Tom, I mean, the gig economy, good for workers or, or not? Yeah, but just to, to make a link with what has been said, you know, when you don't have competition, when you have one platform monopoly like Airbnb or Uber in one sector, they have a, a, an overwhelming power over uh, gig workers who are in that sector. So if they have uh, an unbalanced power, then they have some, uh, some leeway to exploit a gig economy worker. And that's when as you say, it can have a negative impact uh, on their health. And there, there, is, there are contradictory evidences, uh, whether uh, gig, being a gig worker is actually bad or good for your mental health. So there was a paper by economists Mark Stabile and Benedict Apoué, who found that uh, gig workers actually reported uh, better mental health than ma mainstream workers. Uh, and the explanation is that being self-employed, uh, the feeling of freedom, all of those aspects, they drive up your, uh, your motivation, your autonomy, uh, and so people feel happier uh, at work in those conditions. And then you have a, a, another piece of work by Keith Bender and Yuanis Teosidou that shows that zero-hour contract, which is very often has the many commonalities with, uh, with gig work, uh, it takes a toll on people. So they start having uh, problems in their relationships, uh, they experience lack of sleep. Uh, and so I think the key to reconcile this is to focus on the conditions in which uh, gig workers can exert their activity. And for a lot of gig workers uh, working uh, on behalf of our platform, it means uncertainty, uncertainty over your streams of revenues, over how much you will work, over your hours. Are you going to work uh, 
uh, at night, uh, in the morning, what will you do before, what will you do in between. Uh, so if you have a lot of uncertainty, yes, for sure you have a lot of stress. But there are some aspects of the gig economy that also create stability for workers, where they know they're going to have a steady stream of work because of those platforms bringing them opportunity to work. So, so, okay, I can understand that argument, but how do you reconcile it? How do you achieve that, that correct balance? Mm -hmm. Because many platforms, these, these are big corporates, argument about monopoly capitalism here, and what monopoly want to do is get rid of uncertainty. And what they're doing is they're spreading the, sending the uncertainty down to the workers. They're reducing the costs mm -hmm. and spreading all the uncertainty and arguably the risk down into the workers. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do, how do workers respond to that? I mean, if you're in the gig economy, how, how do you achieve this sort of stability that, that, that you say will provide more, less stress and a better quality of, of, of job? Well, I think you need, uh, you need to regulate. You need to regulate the way uh, gig workers uh, interact with platforms. And if there is too much power on the side of the platform, then they can reduce the, the cost of labor, they can put pressure on the workers, they can generate competition between the gig workers, like Deliveroo did, for example. Uh, so to some extent... Uh, so what did Deliveroo do? Well, Deliveroo, they hire a lot of uh, bikers, a lot of gig workers, and they create competition between workers to take the gigs. And if you create competition, then uh, you reduce the cost of labor and you put pressure on the workers, you create more uncertainty for them and uh, lower revenues. And most of those gig workers, uh, if we go back to Marx's theory of exploitation, sorry to cite Karl Marx uh, in nothing, a business school. Nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with Karl Marx in a business school. We, are, we take all views here. But one of, the pluralist. one of the main arguments of Karl Marx is that workers are exploited when there is a difference in, in the balance of power between the workers and the employers. And when the workers are forced to go into some kind of economic activity because it's their only way to survive, they need this stream of revenues, then there is potential for them to be exploited because the platform or the more powerful side will put more pressure uh, on, uh, on their salary. And I, I would suggest that the side effects are not only uh, directly on their, their, their salary. Uh, I touched on social capital before. Uh, if, if you are an, an atomistic, isolated gig worker, you don't you're not creating through your work a network of people who know you and know that you're uh, reliable or that you're a good person or that you, uh, that you offer quality work. You're not able to rise to any kind of prominence. You're not able to put yourself in a in a sort of gatekeeper position as people are able to do in sort of tr traditional workplaces. You're not able to get the benefits of teamwork and uh, be, being able to learn from, uh, learn from others. So, okay, the gig economy is perhaps here to stay, so workers are going to have to find alternative ways to develop their, uh, their social capital outside the workplace is, is, is perhaps the, uh, uh, the outcome of all that. But it's, it's something, I think, quite serious that's being stripped away uh, from the experience of, of doing a job uh, when we don't have those opportunities to build our, uh, to build our social capital. Linda. Yeah, I was also just about to use the words atomization and isolation. Um, but I'd like to add to that deunionization as well. So as well as kind of personal experiences and, and the lack of social capital, um, you know, without the power of the union, then clearly workers' position will get worse and worse, as Tom has implied. Um, so, or this is our experience. So, uh, 
we have to try to work out how we're going to do some of these things. And there are startups that are trying to fill some of these spaces. You know, there's um, you know, there's a space probably for fintech to help um, gig workers. One of the problems is that a financial exclusion is not having thick enough files. You know, not having enough information. And lots mm. of gig workers. Mm. That's it. If you're excluded from finance, then you're excluded from lots of things in our society. So, are the fintech solutions that recognise the income of gig workers and that can give them thicker files? Um, but also. Um, uh, I came across an organisation which is a startup called Trezio, um, who are doing income smoothing for gig for gig economy workers, so mm. that you pay a little bit extra in, so that it kind of smooths stuff out over periods of time. But I don't think these things really address the significant social and potentially sort of psychological issues of this new form of work. And for that, we need uh, actual government policy, in my view. Okay, what, what, what would those sorts of policies look like? I mean. Uh, how are we going to regulate this sector and maintain it to be competitive? Tom, you, you, you mentioned that, that, that you needed regulation, but you know, the devil's in the detail with these sorts mm -hmm. of things. Yes, well, I don't have the details yet, but <laughs> I'm working on You're it. You're working on it. <laughs> no, I think uh, we need to ask uh, the, the platform to actually provide, for example, insurance products for and pay for the insurance products for their workers. Uh, and uh, so a lot of insurance companies now are thinking about those questions, but the key element is who should pay for it. Well, I mean, if the platform are generating the revenues and cutting a large part of the revenues, they should pay uh, for, for, for gig workers' insurance um, and for other aspects, for smoothing their, their revenues, which is another key source of stress for, for gig workers. And there are ways to do that. It's not like it's impossible. Uh, but if you, uh, if many of those platform firms, they are, uh, they are pushing more and more the boundaries uh, by, by putting more pressure on the workers and they are not really thinking about those ways they can actually make it, make it easier for those workers to, um, to sustain a normal life and, and good living condition on the basis of gig work. Should we break some of the bigger platforms up? Are they, are they just too big? I mean, we, uh, under our scale has to be important in some contexts, but uh, do, do we have to have global Uber? Competition is doing that already. Yeah. I, I th competition is breaking these up. I mean, Uber, arguably, uh, many analysts suggest will never make a profit. Uh, it has plenty of competitors in, in, in many of the markets it operates in. Uh, and, those, and often those competitors are differentiating themselves on the basis of trying to be a bit better to their... Uh, to their task providers, to their drivers. Uh, so, so I think we just we it, it's it's painful to watch sort of neo-Dickensian uh, conditions emerge in the economy again. But uh, the platform technology perhaps offers some uh, some 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 opportunities for uh, the certainly the the better uh, the better qualified, the more knowledgeable workers to actually uh, get, get, get a, a, a further measure of control. Going back to this question of, of government policies, um, I'd suggest that uh, the, the platforms have an opportunity to share some of the trust that they're building up for their, uh, for their, uh, for their gig workers. Uh, so there's a, there's a ride-sharing platform in France called BlaBlaCar. Uh, and they've done some fascinating work. I mean, that's not a gig economy, that's sharing economy, not gig economy. But they've done some fascinating work looking at uh, how do you build up people's trust in, in someone they've only ever seen online. Uh, and then they've got a, quite a sophisticated model and, and they, they say if all six elements of their model are applied, then 
they find that consumers trust these blah blah car ride sharers nearly as much, very very close statistically, uh, as, as they trust their own friends. So if there was a way that platforms can allow some portability or be forced by government into providing portability of the proof of work, the proof of reliability, the proof of good reviews, if you like, uh, for, that the workers can take that away and take it to their next, uh, to the next gig, if you like, uh, that might be a, a way to, to lubricate, that the government could, could help lubricate the situation uh, for drivers without destroying the basic efficiency of the platform model itself. So that helps develop or to ensure the, the portability of trust, mm. which is one aspect of social capital, but yeah. it's not the only aspect no, of social no, capital. No. Many, many other aspects of social capital, as you mentioned, Chris, are going to be no, yeah. I mean, they destroyed or you, reduced. You, you, you don't have mentors. Yeah. You, you don't have uh, sort of training opportunities in a, in a gig economy uh, situation. Lots of things that we see in what we now have to think of as traditional workplaces. Yeah. Uh, w wouldn't be replicated by, 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 by that intervention. And maybe governments need to look at those. Certainly government, the, 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 the thrust has to be from governments to say, well, employers in traditional workplaces are actually providing a really important service to society uh, in providing lifelong learning opportunities, uh, even if they're not formal training opportunities, just knowing your colleagues and being able to talk to them about how, how they do their jobs is a lifelong lear learning opportunity. If you're isolated, if you're atomistic, maybe the government's going to have to do more to allow those people to get those, the, get those kinds of opportunities uh, and, and, and enable them to be mobile in the economy. It is interesting. In, in the UK, there are we're now in a, a fog of lies because we're re recording this during the uh, election campaign, but there are many policies put, being put forward to encourage lifelong learning. And there's a recent report on the importance of lifelong learning that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one way of dealing with part, some of these challenges. But there are other challenges about the loss of social capital, which cannot just be solved through educational programmes alone. Belinda? Yeah, I don't think we should lose sight on a, on a, on a good day uh, of the positive potential of the kind of flexibility and independence that working and living in this different way, could, you know, it could mm -hmm. definitely be and already is for some people liberating. Um, so I do think that we it's, it's incumbent upon us to try and create a space in which it operates in a way that, as you say, is not Dickensian. And some of that is about um, how we set a kind of cultural boundary between what it is and isn't okay. And one of the things that upsets me at the moment is the, the kind of moving towards this sort of assumption that if you are a low-income worker, that you don't just do one job, right? You kind of go to work and do your cleaning in the day and then you have to drive a car in the night. You know, that this idea of, of it's all very well to be, you know, liberated, independent uh, for, some, for some people, but it doesn't seem to be panning out very well for those people. And so I think how the public conversation is enhanced and, um, and controlled by people in power is also important so that we decide as a society which bits of the potential here we want to take. That gets me on to really sort of the final broad topic to, 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 to finish with. Um, I mean, we started with the, the notion that, you know, technology and perhaps changes in labour markets are really changing the nature of work. Um, the gig economy may be one part of it, and the platform-driven gig economy, one subset of that. But I'd just like to see your views about technology and work in the future. I mean, are you optimistic about technology will improve both employment opportunities and the quality of life, 
or are you pessimistic? Because there are different views about technology here, that technology can destroy jobs and can be very disruptive. There's another argument that in the longer run, technology creates jobs, improves the standard of living, and improves the quality of life. So are you optimistic or pessimistic or, or being academics, probably both. Um, so uh, Belinda, I'm going to go straight to you. I've just actually come back from um, a conference in Tunisia on, um, on this very question about digital innovation um, across the Maghreb. And, uh, you know, on a good day, uh, I, uh, I have the kind of utopian vision of the future and on, on a bad day, the dystopian uh, vision of the future. So can you, so, can you talk, talk us through both? Yeah, well, as you say, potentially, uh, it can be argued that innovation and digitalization of things um, will make things better, more efficient, create jobs, uh, remove, uh, you know, drudge labor from people and so on and so forth. That's, you know, the positive side of it. And we definitely have seen that happening at times in different um, places. Um, but the, the other side of, of this, the kind of dystopian vision is that innovation in general, um, it tends to benefit the already privileged at the expense of the already underprivileged. And um, we know there's a direct correlation between the most innovative places and the most unequal places. And so it feels like um, technology can only create this utopian vision if we somehow control it so that um, so that, that natural exploitation of disadvantage doesn't, doesn't, doesn't continue. Yeah, I think Belinda is absolutely right. What would Karl Marx have said yeah, about yeah, robots yeah. and Terminator? That's three times you quote Karl Marx. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. That's more times than never, any other time on uh, one of these podcasts. It's never enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, probably we need to think about how much power do we put in the hands of automation, of technology, of robots. And uh, the main point with platform is that we might be putting too much power in the hands of uh, yeah, of apps, of tools uh, that then deprive some of the workers and some of the customers as well uh, from the power to choose, from the power uh, to have good working conditions. Uh, and I think that's the key question we need to ask. So yes to automation and technology. If we uh, workers, uh, customers, managers, we remain in power. And how, but how do we remain in power? I mean, that, that's the big challenge. Well, I think we do that by considering the ownership structure of the businesses. For me, this is all about thinking about, and I think in general, we need to think much harder about the whole corporate form and the way that we do incorporation in, uh, uh, in this country and others. And, you know, if we as stakeholders are owning these platforms, as opposed to just being customers or um, gig workers within them, then the whole picture changes. So it's the ownership of capital that's not I'm just the ownership so. of labor here. I'm afraid so. Yeah, absolutely. Crucial. Yeah. Okay. That's my view. Chris. Uh, pessimistic uh, because of this, of what Belinda highlights about the sort of uh, the Matthew effect, the rich getting richer and the, and the poor getting poorer. On the other hand, the increased fluidity that these platforms bring, the increased opportunities for uh, de determining your destiny even on, in, a, in a small way. If we look around the world, we do see that as one of the foundations of people getting out of poverty, people having a bit more money, a bit more, uh, a bit more opportunity, a bit more flexibility. The evidence is that they, that people are smart and they use that, uh, that increased income and that increased flexibility to improve their position. So, problem with the relative distribution of uh, of, of of wealth, perhaps, but also. Uh, opportunities uh, at, the, at the bottom end of the pyramid. So, as well. so you're optimistic because economic growth improves the well-being of people, but you're pessimistic because of the increasing distribution of in, in unequal distribution of income. If even small trickles of, of opportunity and wealth, we have plenty of evidence in 
emerging economies. It is, it's a story that goes beyond just a, a general growth story. It's a story about a, a small increase in opportunity. People seize that and, uh, and, and make something out of it. Thank you very much to my guests today, Dr. Belinda Bell, Dr. Chris Coleridge, and Dr. Tom Aroulet. Uh, many important issues that I'm sure we'll be discussing in future, um, particularly the pessimistic and optimistic impact of technology on work, life and well-being. But that's for another time because we've run out of time today. So thank you for joining us and I hope you can join us next time. <laughs>